Today's passage speaks of the unity of the church for the sake of God's mission. And I want to begin with this question. Do you ever wonder why Jesus still uses the church to advance his mission? Do you ever wonder why Jesus still uses the church to advance his kingdom? Because since its inception, the church has constantly faced the plague of division and disunity. You just look at church history. You look at even the Southern Baptist Convention today, and you see that not everybody agrees. You look at just the mere fact that even evangelicalism, which is just one tribe of the church universal, has many denominations and tribes within evangelical faith, that it's clear that unity continues to be an issue. So why would Jesus continue to use a fragmented church to show the world that he is the Messiah? And the answer lies in understanding what Jesus meant by unity. That despite our differences, the church, amazingly, just think of this miracle of God, that despite our differences, the church has somehow survived for 2,000 years. And in our passage today, Jesus, I want you to notice, he does not use the term unity. That's not how the best English translations render the Greek term where we would understand unity. Instead, he uses the word oneness. If you understand what he means by oneness, you will understand what he means by unity, and you'll understand what type of unity he speaks of. It's a unity that allows for agree to disagree among different denominations. It's a unity that allows for different organizations to come together and agree on the primary doctrines, but disagree on secondary doctrines, but still be one in the Godhead. It is a very different type of deep oneness that he speaks of. I've entitled our message today, The Oneness, the Witness, and the Glory of the Church. The Oneness, the Witness, and the Glory of the Church. Last week, we looked at the first part of John 17. And in the first part of John 17, Jesus prayed for himself and his 11 apostles. But today, he extends his prayer to include every single believer. And this includes you and me. Anyone who follows Christ as Lord... John 17 applies to us. So now, if you have God's word, meet me in verses 21 and 26. John 17, verses 21 and 26, where we see that Jesus prays for our oneness, our witness, and our glorification. The first thing that I want us to see today is that Jesus prays for the oneness and the witness of his church. He prays for the oneness of his church for the sake of the witness of his church. But he prays for the oneness and witness of the church. You see this in verses 20 to 23 of John 17. But we're going to start with verse 20. Verse 20 simply extends Jesus' prayer from the first part of John 17 to all, his, to all of us. Not just his apostles, but all his disciples. That includes you and I. So look with me at verse 20. Jesus says this, I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So Jesus prays for every single person who will come to Christ through the ministry of his apostles. The apostles would preach the word. They would proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. And many, many in all of church history and many past, present, future would come to Christ through the preaching 
and the foundation of the apostles' ministry. In other words, Jesus launched his church through the ministry of the apostles, and throughout the centuries, the church would continue to proclaim that same word, the same scriptures that are passed down unto us, and Jesus prays for the church. He prays that that word would bear fruits. And, he, and then he begins to pray for every single believer. Now, I want you to notice that Jesus, in verses 21 to 23, he prays for the oneness of the church. And I mentioned in the introduction that he uses oneness to describe the unity. I want you to see this repeated. It's repetitive. Notice verse 21 that they may all be one. Then you look at verse 22, that they may be one. And then in verse 23, that they may be perfectly one. Notice the nowhere. You can look at the ESV, which is what I have on the screen for you. You can look at the New American Standard Bible, 1995 version. You can look at all of the trustworthy Bible translations, and the word that is used is one. It's not unity. And I think that the translators consider that because when we think of unity, we think first, some people think of uniformity. Some people think of uniformity. But Jesus knew that the gospel would go out to the nations, every tongue, every tribe, every nation. That's Johannine language, and we are in John's gospel. And if you're hitting every tongue, tribe, and nation, you're going to have various organizations who believe in the gospel, local organizations called local churches, and maybe cooperations or cooperative gatherings of various local churches that come together. But when you spread that across the world, everyone's going to have a different cultural application of the gospel and doctrine. They're going to have different contexts. Their worship songs are going to be different. The worship lyrics are going to be in different tongues representing the tribes and the nations. Jesus is not talking about uniformity. There are people who worship in sandals or barefooted. There are people worshiping in suits. All of that, the cultural differences. And so there's no way that Jesus is praying that the church would be uniform. But sometimes when we think of unity, we think of one vision statement. Everybody says the same thing. Everyone wears the same colors, like a team with a uniform on. But Jesus is not talking about uniformity because the church it would be impossible for the church globally to be uniform. He's talking about oneness. Secondly, he's not talking about organizational unity. Jesus' body is broken down into local expressions, which I mentioned, called churches. But we are all part of the church universal. But we are not part of one Catholic church in the sense of there's not one pope and a bunch of bishops and it's one Roman Catholic organization. That's not the church that he had in mind. That would be organizational unity. But when you think of Presbyterians and Baptists, we can agree to disagree on infant baptism versus adult believers of baptism. But at the end of the day, we're preaching the same gospel. We're preaching the same sola scriptura, the same authority of the scripture. We both believe in church membership. So you can have differences at the secondary level. You can have organizations that organize around different secondary doctrines. And Jesus knew this. He knew in Acts chapter 6 that there would be cultural differences even among the, the early church between Hellenistic Jews and Hebraic Jews. He, he knew he needed a different type of leadership that would understand the cultural context 
that distinguished the Hebraic Jews in the early church versus the Hellenistic Jews, the Jews who were Greek in culture, versus the Jews who were Hebrew in culture and language. And so how you exercise and practice the organization of the church, there needs to be some organizational unity. But for the entire church universal to have one same strategy or one purpose statement, I think that's just something that Jesus knew was not going to happen. In fact, Jesus knew he allowed, at least temporarily, for Paul and Barnabas to go their separate ways and to reach different people. Peter would bring the gospel as well to the Jews, and Paul, being a Jew, would go to the Gentiles, and it would be different. And so Jesus is not talking about organizational unity. When we think of unity, we think of uniformity. We might think of organizational unity. But he's talking about the unity of our salvation in Christ. That believers from every tongue, tribe, nation, throughout all of church history would be one with God because we share our salvation in Christ. In other words, what unites us underneath the surface is that every genuine believer has been brought into the fellowship of the Trinity. And that's where we need to camp out today. Because when you see what he says, so he mentions repetitively that they may all be one that they may all be one, that they may be perfectly one. What is his standard of oneness? I want you to look once again at verses 21 and 23. And I want you to notice the, the different emphasis. Verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us. That's a high standard. That's saying Jesus is praying for his church to experience the oneness that he has between him and him and the Father. Trinitarian unity. Man, the, the church is really far from that when you think of organizational unity and uniformity. But that's why he's not talking about that type of unity. Look at verse 22. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. So the standard of oneness is Trinitarian. Verse 23, I in them, you in me. Jesus in us, us in union with Christ, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. So, so the way that you love me, I want them to experience that. The way that you, Father, and I are united in one unbreakable, eternal union, I want them in me. That's the standard of unity. It is, it is a very high standard that they also may be in us. You see, the genuine believer is brought into the economy of the Trinity where there's a divine exchange of love between God the Father and God the Son, and Jesus brings us into this economy. So when Jesus says, the glory given to me, I want given to them, that's the glory given to Christ. Christ gives to us, and that's his love. Now, I know that's deep, so I have to illustrate this for you. I have to illustrate this for you. I'm going to go simple and juvenile, and then I'll go theological, because I got to get it down for you. Juvenile. How many of you my age played Street Fighter 2? Raise your hand. Come on now, come on. Say, preach it, pastor. 
Street Fighter 2. Ken and Ryu, what do they do? What do they say? Hatoken, right? Fireball. So I, in my immature understanding, to the best of my ability, imagine God the Father giving an eternal, divine hatoken, you know, just like this, this crazy force of love, pouring that love eternally upon his son. It's this fireball of love, and you know how when the unstoppable force meets the immovable object type of idea? Imagine God the Son returning the same intensity of eternal divine love, and you just have this crazy force of two beings, eternal, infinite, unstoppable, powerful. But God's love is 100% righteous, 100% holy, 100% pure. For all of eternity, the God the Father pouring on his perfect, endless love like an f- endless fireball upon his son. But it's much deeper than that. But in my human, limited understanding, that's the best thing I can think of. A Street Fighter II fireball. <laughs> right? But here's God the Son's love. So God the Father is pouring. And I want you to understand glory. The glory of love. Didn't Peter Cetera or someone write a song like that? When, when it says glorify, 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 glorify. When you think of the human person receiving glory, you think of athletes, right? They make a last-minute buzzer beater, the basketball players, and they're like, oh, yeah, glory. And everyone's like affirming them, praising them. That's how we think of glory. God the Father, when he glorifies his son, it's love. So it's not this self-glory. He doesn't glorify himself. His son glorifies him. You see that? So God the Father, when he's pouring his glory on his son, you know what that glory is? It's love. But it's selfless love. It's unconditional love. It's eternal, perfect, sinless love upon his son. The son, the son's love, at times it looks like perfect obedience to his father's will. At times, it looks like eternal submission, but it's love. And so what God the Son is doing is he's glorifying his father. But what is he, what's, what's the communication of, of glory? You have to understand this. When we think of glory, we think, oh, accolades, praise, adoration. What do you think the Son is doing? He's communicating love. God's glory is God's attributes. God's glory is God's love. When God is glorious and he communicates his glory and he pours his glory out on someone else, it's love. Okay? So God the Son is loving God the Father back. Is that picture pretty clear? But it's unstoppable. It's not just like, I love you, I'm going to go do my own thing. You know how sometimes when we communicate to people, I love you, and then we walk away? Imagine this eternal communication of love. And I know there's some charismatics in here, right? Baptist church, but we got some charismatics in here. So you're asking, come on, pastor, where's the Holy Spirit? Really? Where's the Holy Spirit? When God the Father communicates his love to God the Son, he does so through the agency of the Holy Spirit. When God the Son returns his love back to his Father, he does so through the agency and the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the being of which God the Father and God the Son exchange their love, and this is called the economy of the Trinity. That's why 
when you refer to the fruit of the Spirit, love is part of the fruit of the Spirit. Because the Spirit of God is love. And so when God wants us to experience His love, it's through the Holy Spirit. Every single time God wants to communicate His love to us, the Trinity communicates love through the person of the Spirit. So imagine this crazy economy where there's this nonstop communication of eternal love. And when he talks about the unity of the church, he's saying every single believer is brought into that economy. Do you understand that? You know, give me some amen or something. You understand that? Do you understand that you and I, when we're saved, we are into this economy of love. And what does that love do to you? Changes you. Transforms you. He's talking about that. That for all of church history, amazingly, it's not just one or two people that said, I've been transformed by the love of God. But he's talking about for 2,000 years, because of the work of missionaries, starting with apostles and the church being built out, that you have myriads and myriads of believers who can say the same thing. Hey, I might agree with you on infant, I might disagree with you on secondary doctrines, but you and I are brothers and sisters in Christ because we all have been transformed. We're different beings because we've been brought into the economy of the Trinity. Now, let me help you understand this a little more. How do you enter into the relationship with the Trinity? Through which person? Come on, give it to me. Who? God the? What's his name? Jesus. And Jesus' communication to his Father, a lot of times his version of love is submission and obedience, right? Father, I trust you. I trust your will. You know, you come in through the Son. And so imagine yourself as that believer standing in the position of the Son. The more you experience in Christ, the more you experience the Father's love, the more you trust God. The more you experience the Father's love, the more you obey Him. Not out of guilt, not out of terrifying fear in a bad sense, but out of love and gratitude. Because, that, because the Father's love is what you and I were created to live under. The more you experience the Father's love, the more you obey. So it makes sense that the way that you come into the Trinity is through the Son, and our relationship to God the Father more and more begins to reflect how Jesus relates to his Father. Obedience, trust, because that love is transforming us. And when we are being renewed by the love of God, whose image are we being renewed into? Jesus. So doesn't that make sense that you and I are brought into the economy of the Trinity through the person of Jesus so that in the position of Jesus, we get that eternal love poured onto us where it transforms us, it transforms us so that we become like Christ. That was the theology lesson for today. It started with Street Fighter 2, but you'll never forget it. Remember when Pastor talked about Street Fighter 2? You'll, you'll always forget when I talk to you about the Trinity, but you'll always remember. Remember when he did Hathoken? Just remember that, that God the Father has an eternal fireball of love aimed at you, and it's meant to transform you through the power of the Spirit.
That's what Jesus is praying for. That's the oneness. He's saying for all of church history, when people see that your life has been transformed, not just your, your life, but, but myriads of believers, lives have been changed by the love of God. They will know when you say it's because of Jesus that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, let me show you that part. Let me show you that part. Now, the purpose of the oneness is for the sake of the evangelism. Now, let me read it to you. That they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me. Right? We're drawn into the economy of the Trinity. I in you, that they also may be in us. Why? Hint a clause. So that the world may believe that you've sent me. And today it's for purpose. It's the purpose. What's the purpose of our oneness? <clears throat> it's so that the world may believe that you've sent me. Verse 23, I in them, you in me, so again, brought into the economy of the Trinity, that they may become perfectly one. How do you become perfectly one? You're in the Trinity. So that the world may know that you sent me. Right? The so that. Again, purpose clause. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them just as you love me. That's where we get the picture from. Jesus wants his disciples to experience the Father's love, the same love that he experienced for eternity's past, and to share that love with the world. And the more and more believers come into the church, the more there's this unified corporate oneness for the sake of our corporate witness. He's talking about the corporate witness of the church universal for the, for the church of every age for 2,000 years. What a powerful witness when the world sees believers all over the world. You can go to someone, a, a believer from another nation who might not speak the same language as you, but you start trying to communicate, and, and, and there's something deep there. There's a deep connection because of your, your, your shared experience that you and I, we could not save ourselves. That the only way we were saved from the damnation of our sin, the depravity of our sin, was through Christ alone. And you have the shared testimony of some type of transformed life. You see, when the world sees that, they will believe the message of the Messiah. That's point number one. Point number two is Jesus prays for the glorification of his church. So the first was Jesus prayed for the oneness and the witness of his church. But the second now, he prays for the glorification of his church. Now, we mentioned that Jesus wants us to be with him. So spiritually right now, we are in union with the Trinity, but we're still here on earth. He knew that was true for his apostles. He prayed that for his apostles, that, that last week we saw that the Father would keep them in the faith, that he would secure them, allow them to persevere, protect them. But eventually, he wants his disciples, not just the apostles, but you and me, all of us, to be with him. You see, salvation is not just about being saved from judgment the judgment of sin. Salvation is being saved unto and into the presence of God. What is real now spiritually, meaning us being united into the divine Trinitarian economy, but we don't realize it because we're still on this earth, that one day will be a real experience when you are brought into heaven. And when Jesus returns and we receive our resurrected bodies, we're in the presence of God. That's what it means to have eternal life. Eternal life cannot be separated as a separate thing apart from God. The purpose of eternal life is when is that you've been, your sin has severed a relationship between you 
and an infinite being. But when Jesus bridges that gap and when you are reunited to an eternal and infinite God, you have eternal life. That's what it is. Eternal life is being reunited with an eternal God. And when you're in the presence of God, you experience eternal life forever. So we experience God's presence now through the Holy Spirit, but one day we who trust Christ will be in the immediate presence of God in heaven, and that's what Jesus speaks of in verse 24. Now let me show it to you. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. And I mentioned to you, what's the glory? It's the communication of love between the members of the Trinity. And if you were to be able to sit there and see that divine exchange, you would just worship. You wouldn't even know what to do with yourself. You would just be so amazed. He says, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. He's pointing back to that eternal, infinite glory that he experienced until the moment on the cross. You see, when Jesus was on the cross, when he says, my father, it's not in John's gospel, but in the other gospels, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the very first time that he experiences that love of the father cut off. Temporarily, but cut off. So God's wrath is the absence of that eternal perfect love. Sometimes we think of God's wrath as God like kicking and burning somebody. That's not God's wrath. I, I do believe in a literal hell. We read about fire, lakes of fire. I don't think it's just a Dante's infernal idea. But have you ever considered that the wrath of God is him withholding his perfect love and pulling back and temporarily not giving it? Or his wrath is an absence of his love because we've rejected it. But here's God the Son. He's never experienced darkness of sin. He has no sin in the sense. He hasn't sinned. And for the very first time, that love is severed for you and me. That eternal fireball of love that's been poured out on him for the very first time on the cross. That's gone. But he thinks, I've experienced that type of perfect love from my father from before the foundation of the world. Now, of course, Jesus dies for our sins, rises again, comes out of the grave, and he secures that love for anybody who would believe in him as Lord and Savior. And now he's praying that after the work is done, when he brings many people back into glory, that they would experience the same love that he had prior to the cross. And he's going to experience it again. But he's praying that for us before he goes to the cross, before the foundation of the world, because you love me and he wants us to experience that love. That's his glory. It's a glory of divine love. Jesus is praying for us to be in his presence and to see his preexistent glory in heaven. And for you and me, this is talking about our glorification. The only time we're going to fully experience that glorious love is when we go into the presence of God. 
Now, notice verses 25 and 26. He refers to the Father as, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you've sent me. Verse 26, I made known to them your name. I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Again, you see that picture, the divine Trinitarian economy of this eternal communication of love between God the Father and God the Son communicated mutually through the person of the Holy Spirit. The love with which you have loved me may be in them. That is insane to think that in your hearts and in my heart, we have the capacity to love because that Trinitarian love, though imperfectly right now because of our sin, lives in us. So when we say there's no way I as a Jew can love a Gentile based on what they have conquered and done to my family, or when I say there's no way I can reconcile this difference, I, what we're saying is I don't have the capacity to love. And what the gospel tells us is that that means that you're not truly saved yet. Obviously, we all struggle with loving people, but there's a progressive process of being sanctified in love. That the more you experience the Father's love, again, I need you to see the picture. You're standing in the position of the Son. The Father's love, eternal fireball of love being poured onto you. Through Christ, the more you experience the Father's love, the more your capacity to love grows. That's what he's saying. Unity, a different type of unity, is possible. Oneness is possible. How? What's the only way that you can love someone who has hurt you so badly? And how can people with so much deep hurt reconcile? in the church, Jews and Gentiles. How could that reconciliation happen? It's because you've been brought into the economy of the Trinity. That gives you, in your heart, the capacity to love. And the more you experience the Father's love, you experience the love which you have loved me may be in our hearts through Christ. It's the, it's the Trinity's work in our hearts of the Holy Spirit indwelling, the, the name of Jesus, and the Father's love being poured out. All of that gives us the capacity to forgive, to reconcile. And when we show the world that people who shouldn't be reconciled are able to be united, then they will believe our witness that Jesus is Messiah. Does the passage make sense now? John's a crazy theologian. But it's real. It is only through Christ that we experience the character of God. It is only through Christ that we experience the glory of God. And it's only through Christ that we experience the perfect love and the righteousness of God. When Jesus refers to God as the righteous Father, it's because God's character is perfectly righteous. And he's very clear, the world doesn't know that God is righteous. They, they might think that God wants to control them. They might think that God is just a judge. They might think that God is some 
distant being that doesn't care because he allows for suffering. But the New Testament tells us that the righteousness of God is revealed through Christ. And those who know Christ, we know the righteousness of God. That God doesn't just have righteous character. His righteousness is defined by love. And the world needs to see and experience the Father's love that you and I have experienced. And one of the ways that they're going to see it is the oneness that we share with the church. Universal. The big idea of this morning's message is that Jesus prays for the oneness of his church as a witness to the world of his glorious love. His love. Jesus prays for the oneness of his church as a witness to the world of his glorious love. Applicationally, let me first start with the church, universal, the big church. The oneness of the church, applicationally, first speaks of our, the unity of our salvation. It is not an organizational unity, but an organic unity based on our union with the Trinity. Do not be discouraged when you see the church being divided. Even this week, why well, you see it within the Southern Baptist Convention, there's some disfellowshipping of churches over secondary issues. Now, you know, we can have our opinions, and if you ask me personally, I have my own opinions. But at the end of the day, I, I see a lot of our brethren getting discouraged. You see majority culture evangelicalism fighting over politics, you see Christianity Today, a popular publication, which I think there's a lot of good there, but they're going after other supposedly conservative evangelicals. It's like we're not even talking about liberals and conservatives. We're talking about conservatives shooting each other. And so a lot of times, even as an immigrant church, we sit back and we got our own, you know, multiple congregations and languages. So we're like, I don't know what y'all doing out there. We got to deal with our own stuff here first. And so we don't really care about what you know, but we do care. And so sometimes it can be so discouraging if we expect that unity and oneness is organizational unity or uniformity. But I think when Jesus prayed the high priestly prayer, he knew that his church would go through such disunity. So instead, he's praying for oneness that at the end of the day, even though people agree to disagree, and they have the right processes to do so, that we can all agree on the primary doctrine of salvation in Christ. I think we're reaching an age, especially the immigrant church and our multi-ethnic English congregations, that at the end of the day, you're going to see a new generation of evangelicals that unite around the primary doctrines that we'll still have our opinions on the secondary doctrines, and some of them are really important. But you'll see more and more networks arise that can agree that even though we do church differently, that we can do missions together. Meaning Presbyterians and Baptists can disagree, but you see, that's where missions equals church planting. So again, you're going to disagree, agree to disagree. So at some point, though, I think there's going to be a sweet spot where we can agree on the primary doctrine that salvation comes through faith in Christ alone, by the grace of Christ alone, and only through the work of Christ alone. And if we can be in Christ alone, then that mission, that mission will be vibrant. 
to make disciples of Christ, that the primary doctrine of salvation in and through Christ alone is what's going to unite and propel the church universal forward, going forward with the subsequent generations. You will see it. You will see it. Second, now into our local church. Oneness or unity is incomplete without mission. A lot of times we talk about community. We talk about inreach. I've learned the hard way, and I've learned through experience, and almost every group leader, small group, community group leader in here, after two or three years, you come talk to the pastors, you feel it too, and God puts this missional impulse in your heart that community without mission lacks purpose, and when your community lacks purpose, you start to realize and ask each other, why, why are we even meeting? This is doing the same thing. It's been three years. It's great, right? Community is good because in your community groups, you care for one another. You pray for one another. That's good. But you notice that almost all of your group leaders, every single year, or maybe even multiple times a year, they'll sit down with your group and they will say, hey, let's review what we're going to study or why we exist. Let's all sign a covenant for some of you closed groups, right? Let's renew why we're here. What do we exist for? They are asking for vision and purpose. Community without vision, community without purpose, community without mission, might I say, is a community that's eventually going to fizzle out and fade out and die. And I've learned that. A church without mission, a church without outreach, a church without a mission to reach unbelievers, seekers, and newcomers is a church that will die. Because the purpose of the oneness is for the sake of witness, so that they will know that I am the Messiah, that you sent me. So one of the best ways to renew the purpose of your groups is to just allow for the invitation of newcomers to come in and just shake things up, or a seeker or a non-Christian to come in and to watch Christians live, and to invite them in, shake it up, right? Remember the mission Community without mission lacks purpose, and that's why it's oneness of his church for the sake of the witness to the world of his glorious love. The love of Christ is meant to be contagious. It's meant to transform, and when you're transformed, you go outward. Lastly, if you don't know Christ, please respond to the gospel this morning. Respond to the call of Christ. Maybe all your life you've been searching for the love of of God, but really you've been looking for love in all the wrong places, and you've heard this before. You and I were created for the love of God the Father. You and I were created for the Creator's love. God the Father is the one who generated all things. All things were created in and through Christ and through the power of the Spirit, but God the Father is the love. It's the love of how deep the Father's love for us. It's the Father's love that you and I were created for. The only way that you can experience the Father's love, and it begins by his forgiveness, and then him making you whole, him renewing your identity to be made into the image of Christ, it begins with Christ. So if you don't know Christ, I want you to respond to him this morning. Jesus came, he died for your sins. He rose again from the grave. You need to confess, Lord, I am a sinner in need of your grace. I want to repent. In other words, I need a change. Change me. But 
change me, not by guilt, not by force, but by the transformation of your love. Don't just give me the information of the gospel, but the transformation of the gospel power in the position of Christ. The love of Christ, the love of God the Father will transform you as you come through Christ. That's why Christ said, my goal is to bring you to the Father, but no one can come to the Father but through me. When Jesus died on the cross for you and me, he, will, he wanted to communicate to us the love of the Father. The love of the Father that was removed from him temporarily and transferred onto us. That's the essence of the great exchange of the gospel. He's saying, I died for you so that for a moment, I don't experience that eternal perfect love, so that you who deserve eternal wrath and judgment, that that eternal perfect love can be transferred onto you. But the only way you're going to come through is by believing in the cross of Christ and understanding that I needed to pay this substitutionary sacrifice for you so that you can come in and experience the Father's love. He wants to bring us home to the Father. So if you need the Father's love this morning, there's a reason why you're sitting in here. It's not by coincidence. You need the Father's love. Allow your heart to move. I pray that the Spirit would move you. If you want to receive Christ, you could come talk to us. Come talk to us at the Next Steps table. Outside, that's the big table in the counter out there. One of us pastors will be there. You can also talk to the members who are serving there. They could also guide you to Christ. Talk to any of our leaders. Tell them, I want to experience the Father's love through Christ. I want to know more about what it means to be a Christian. Pray with me now. Father, we come before you in the name and in the love and in the position of Jesus Christ. We come to you, Lord, through the union of the Holy Spirit to you. And Father, we pray, Lord, that you would transform our hearts. We pray, Lord, that you would change us from within, that you would make us new, renew us this morning so that we become all the more closer to the image of Christ, which you, the Father, want us to be. You created us to be in your image, and you're renewing us into the image of Christ. Father, I want to pray, Lord, for all of the missionaries who may be worshiping with us today. Maybe they're tired. Maybe they're greatly encouraged. Maybe they're discouraged. We know that COVID really changed the landscape. It changed the ballgame, Lord. We also know that the world has changed. We know that we have many immigrants from East Asia just coming right around our church now, all around, buying houses, changing restaurants, and so many hot pots and Mandarin from Taiwanese and Cantonese restaurants turning into hot pot restaurants and restaurants from East Asia. Lord, we see the missionary landscape changing. I pray, Lord, that you would encourage the missionaries, that they would teach us, that they would in the next three weeks empower us, encourage us to go out of these four walls just to the restaurants, just to the supermarket, just into our neighborhood, and to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to those around us. And then give us the heart to go globally, whether sending or whether going ourselves. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to experience the essence of your oneness here at FCBC Walnut for the sake of your witness of your glorious love to the nations. But start here locally, Lord, so that we can go globally and continue to empower our missionaries and all of our leaders, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Church, let's stand and respond with one more song. Thank you.
streams of mercy, never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet, sung by flaming tongues above. Praise His name, I'm fixed upon it, name of God's redeeming love. Here I raise, here I raise my Ebenezer, here by thy great help I've come, and I hope by thy good pleasure, safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, to rescue me from danger, bought me with his precious blood. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it, seal it for Thank you so much, worship team. We do need help today. Before I give you the benediction, stacking chairs. But if you're a guest, please do not lift a chair. Okay, allow our members and our longtime attendees to do that. Uh, the cleaning crew will come in and they will, they will stack uh, the chairs. I want to say, I don't know who did this. I want to say thank you for whoever gave the Bible 
a Reformation ESV Bible to our security guard, the one that we hired. Thank you. Thank you for doing that. I don't know who. I, they said someone from the English. People are watching, beloved, the witness. Brother talked to me today, and, we, and he's like, hey, somebody gave me a Bible. And we're able to talk. Thank you for whoever did that. So people who come and work on our campus, remember, be a witness to them. Love them. If you see them come in here and want to worship with us, let, let, let's do that, okay? So, uh, but, but please help us, and then I'm going to give the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in God's peace. Amen.